Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Every Thursday afternoon, I'm here taping the show for the Progressive Voices Network with my co-host, John Zipper. John also hosts his own show here at the club, and it's called Week to Week Political Roundtable Talk. I like to say that he's the nice addition to my shows. He's the smart one, and I get to ask all the uh, the fun, fun questions. If I were the smart one, my name would be on the show. <laughs> this is the Michelle Yet Meow show. We have a very, very, very special guest today. Uh, on this program, it started as you know an LGBTQ inclusive program to include thought leaders who can talk about the issues that impact the LGBTQ community. But we found over time that what it truly is is a platform for us to have these intersectional conversations that impact our communities as a whole. So I think our guest, he's he's very perfect for you know the show, and and I'm excited to have him. He is the newly appointed public defender for the city of San Francisco. He has served at the public defender's office for the last 11 years, has also served for seven years in uh, Contra Costa public defender's office, got his education at Columbia, and then came to uh, the Bay and uh, got his law education at UC Berkeley. And so we're excited to have Mano Raju here on the program. Mano, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle and John. Welcome. So traditionally, we do open up the show asking our LGBTQ thought leaders to share a coming out story. Uh, you can, if you'd like, and, and however you know you respond to that or uh, share with us uh, your story. Sure. Um, well, my story, as many of our stories have, has multiple layers. But I think my the main story, the origin story is really the story of being the son of immigrants. My parents came from a a farming village in South India near the border of Kerala. And my mother is very committed growing up that we should go home, not just to India, but to our home village. And I really learned so much about resiliency from my I have a beautiful extended family, although a small family in the United States, a big extended family in India. And you know, my family's not from a Brahmin or from a forward caste background. So, you know, a lot of the, my, my father was someone who had to walk to the next door, next town to hear, hear the news. And he had to find someone in the town who knew English well, so, wow. so that he could learn English. So I learned a lot about resiliency from him. And a lot of the dynamics in a community like that are similar to some of the dynamics, say, in the Bayview here, where you have pride of place, you have people to have to have an understanding of different dynamics, different places where it's maybe safe to go, other places where you should be a little bit more careful. And But at the same time, there's always this big, beautiful, extended family that really holds people. So I think that's uh, what, in part where I came from, come from. As far as, and as far as becoming a public defender, seeing that um, somewhat inequity on a global scale we see within the United States here and in cities and urban centers here. And that translation was easy to see for myself. And fortunately, in my education, I had people when I used to play a lot of basketball when I was a kid. And one of my teammates, he was taking a class called Rural Crisis and learned about apartheid in South Africa. And then he was having a big sale for the African National Congress. So a lot of times we do get inspired to take that step and to be an activist because of those around us. So he was someone who inspired me to 
and that went on to Columbia where I could study critical race theory for a, or was a research assistant for a critical race theory professor at Columbia University. And so I've had people who have um, helped me to look at the world in an honest and critical way. And then also me personally, I've, you know, just like a lot of our clients have been resilient, I've endured suffering in the sense of my sister was really a role model for me, a younger sister, but she passed away at a young age, and so did an uncle of mine. And these are people who didn't leave long lives, but very wide lives, I would say, just a, two of the most empathetic and compassionate people that I know, and they were someone who was who were always doing for others. So I really learned a lot about resilience and the ability to hold suffering. And I think to be a public defender, you have to be able to hold suffering because that's something a lot of our clients are going through and a lot of our clients in their community. So I think I, that really informs my practice. Mm. Um, you didn't, you haven't only been a lawyer and a public defender. I saw this morning you had been a copy editor at India West. Yes, I was a copy editor when I was doing my master's in South Asian studies before I started law school. I would go in two days a week and just read the paper from beginning to end and, and do the line edits on it. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Well, okay, let's uh, let's get into it. You know, let's start with being a public defender um, and going into a case. Are you are you looking at the case? Are you looking at the charges? Or are you looking at the person? I'm looking at both. Uh, but first, I think it's important to look at the person. Um, actually, Matt Gonzalez, who's a uh, you know, dear friend and, and someone that we, I work very closely with as the chief in the, in the public defender's office, he uh, talks about a role called the five-minute rule. And I think it's super important to spend some time, whether it's a misdemeanor case or whether it's a homicide case, and more important, of course, even more time if it's a homicide case, but you want to spend at least five minutes in that initial meeting with your client, getting to know him mm-hmm. or her, getting to know him or her as a person, asking something, where'd you go to high school? What are your musical interests? Uh, tell me about your favorite relative. And tell me two or three things you're proud of in your life. So that you're getting to know that individual as a person, because we want to represent more than defendants. We want to represent individuals, and, and we are representing individuals. And for that, you know, our, in, our clients are not limited by the four corners of the police report. They had a life before this police report started, and they potentially are going to have a life going forward, even in, even on that day. Um, you know, something happened earlier in that day, and something could have happened later on in that day. And I think it's really important that we bring that full person to the courtroom and to our negotiations as much as possible. And to do that, you really want to know that client. And then later on, there are going to be times in a courtroom where you may be calling calendar, and you have seven, eight cases on, and you don't have as much time. And it's really important for our clients to realize that it's not for lack of uh, caring that we can't spend as much time with them in that moment. It's because it's just the calendar is big and there's not as much time. But if you've spent that time initially getting to know your client, you've, it's a really important step in developing trust. Um, we've talked a lot on a number of programs here with Michelle about different ways, different folks from different cultures, different backgrounds, either are understanding things or sometimes we'll run into completely unintended problems because they understood something differently or they're being communicated to differently. You must face that in in, in your your job. And and how does the public defender's office deal with that? I mean, do you have people from every possible background or is it just an approach that you have to deal with that, that you kind of can deploy with everybody? Well, I think for that reason, it's really important to have a diverse staff, and we really do try to recruit a really diverse, um, you know, energetic staff so that we do have people who can reach out across different cultures, different perspectives. 
but also in the courtroom, in, we see this in San Francisco, which is, you know, increasingly becoming stratified. We have housing projects in San Francisco, and we also have, you know, extreme wealth now more and more coming into the city. So one thing I in particular have really been encouraging is calling community experts to the courtroom. It could be a language expert um, who can say, you know, this term, it doesn't actually exist in the English language. I had a Vietnamese uh, case once where there was this term of, I hit him, but I hit him by accident. And that there's not one word in the English language that says that, but there is a word in Vietnamese that conveys that. And, but we really needed that expert in court to convey that to the jury. We also have, you know, many situations where, you know, if you grew up up on the hill in the Bayview, that's very different than someone who may be working at Twitter to understand what are those dynamics. So I've called a community expert, you know, they'll sometimes the prosecution will call a gang expert. And one thing I've heard them say is, you know, a firearm is the hammer for a carpenter. It's a tool of what they do every day to go out, uh, what they do to do their quote unquote gang work. And I've called community experts to say, no, I've worked with a lot of young people. And there's a lot of young people who really don't want to carry a firearm. And, you know, this community expert had counseled them on all the reasons not to. But at the same time, you know, some young people have told him, and I had this expert share this in court, that, listen, I'm, I'm afraid every day when I wake up. And if I have to go in certain neighborhoods, I'm terrified. And I actually pray in the morning that I won't have to use this gun. And I pray when I get home that I didn't use this gun. And that's a real emotion, and it's and it's really important. But we need people from the community who understand our clients and some of their communities to bring that into the ex- into the courtroom. I think a lot of times the perception of an expert is you have to have a PhD in this particular field, mm. and that's the you know we need that kind of expert. But I find communities in San Francisco really are yearning to for the truth, and if we can bring people who actually understand some of those dynamics, they can be, be cultural or community uh, translators for jurors. San Francisco, you know, gosh, we talk every single day for the last few years of how much it's changed, and you just mentioned it, the wealth gap, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, which is impacting our city in in many different ways, and not just from, you know, what's inside our our pockets, but what's happening in our communities. A lot of times people talk about crime in the city, you know, and, and, and their first reaction is that we need more police on hand, and when... I mean, even things like the conversation around the the breaking of car windows, and you hear new residents who are really focused on making sure that there's a budget for increase in in police or police presence, or to do something about that. I, I'd love to hear you know kind of your thoughts and walk us through um, the community part, the part in which we're we're really working with our communities to prevent you know, the crimes from happening in the first place. And I know that that was a big, big thing that the late Jeff Adachi was very focused on, that it wasn't just, you know, going to trial. It wasn't just the case. It wasn't just, you know, the person um, who's being accused of a crime. I think it's really important that the two have to go hand in hand. Um, one of my, um, my, f- first uh, supervisor was David Coleman or first boss was David Coleman in the Contra Costa public defender's office. And he came and sat down next to me after my first misdemeanor trial. And he said, you know, someone really should do a study on the impact of having someone stand next to you and really fight for you as opposed to what's traditionally seen as early acceptance of responsibility by pleading guilty. 
And can the mere effect of someone fighting for you, and in our office, it's not just the attorney fighting for our clients, it's the attorney, investigator, the paralegal, a social worker perhaps can be assigned to the case. And really saying, we have all these people on in your corner, and we're really going to fight for you. And the mere fact of fighting for someone to get the best result, be it in trial or through motion work or through resolution, can that litigation have an impact on that individual to reduce recidivism later on? And I think the answer is it can. But also, we, you know, we have our Mo Magic and our B Magic program. We have programs that do our community conveners where we're trying to direct people to appropriate uh, NGOs or nonprofits that might be able to help that individual in some way or another. And those branches of our office, in some way, we're trying to work ourselves out of a job because we'd like to, and we have reentry plans. So we'd like to see people, if they do end up you know, coming through our doors, and eventually pleading guilty or even otherwise to be have a reentry plan for so what's your plan for the future after this case ends? We have social workers work on reentry plans, um, but also we have to keep in mind that and this is a reason for the expansion of young adult court and or alternative courts where people can go through and not get the conviction because if someone is in a situation where they are doing an auto burglary because either because of a drug addiction or because of a lack of resources. You know, shouldn't we be putting that person in a situation where they have the skills or they've gotten the, the treatment so they, they hopefully won't do that in the future? And their job prospects are obviously going to be better if they don't have that conviction on their record. So, you know, in addition to perhaps whatever law enforcement efforts are going on, we need more efforts to invest in individuals so that if someone was breaking into cars, they won't do that in the future and they'll have other options for themselves. Could you step back a bit and talk about your predecessor, mm-hmm. Jeff Adachi? He spoke at the club many times and mm-hmm. uh, has many fans across mm-hmm. this area, but especially also for our list- <laughs> listeners on the radio and, and podcast who are not from this area. So mm-hmm. what was he like? Did, what did he change the, the office? And what, what's it like to step into his role? Well, the very big shoes to fill. Jeff Adachi was a visionary, a civil rights hero to many, uh, to uh, public interest lawyers, uh, you know, nationally, to the Asian American community, he was an inspiration for many people. And so, I have uh, nothing but the highest respect for Jeff and everything that he accomplished. He really uh, wanted the public defender's office, and he wanted us to provide the best defense that money cannot buy. He really wanted. He thought that listen, if you're getting a public defender office, you should be getting the equivalent representation, representation to the highest paid criminal defense firm and he really pushed us towards individual excellence for each and every one of our clients and he would to the micro level of detail a lot of public defenders aren't fielding calls from individual clients but if there was a client i managed the felony unit uh, before i was appointed by the mayor if there was a call from someone's uncle about a particular client and or representation or something that happened in court i would get a text from jeff hey can you look into this and get back to me on that case. And, you know, we have 40 felony attorneys, each carrying, you know, 40 to 50 cases in any given time. And, but his number was there. So for people to call on our brochure and people would often call and, you know, get directly to his voicemail and then he would be following up on that wherever he was. I, you know, he might be on the other side speaking about an important issue of national significance, but he'd send me that text because he wanted that individual client and that individual family to be cared for. And what he always said is, listen, is this representation the same that you would want for your own family member? And if it's not, it's not the level that we need it to be at. Also, though, he's someone as an elected public defender who is really in the 
in the room talking about justice issues. There's a lot of public defenders office where the public defender isn't at the table when a lot of these decisions are made, but Jeff was always there in, in, in those conversations. And further, uh, he brought the public into these conversations by making sure that we had press releases out. Most of the time, the police will put a press release out. Mm -hmm. The district attorney may put a press release out, and then the press will pick up those, and the article will be there, and there won't be our perspective. He wanted to make sure that our clients and their families had their perspective on matters out there, too. And then, of course, there's these movies that he directed and sometimes acted in, Presumed Guilty, The Defender, Ricochet, other movies where we really... It really humanized our clients, even clients accused of doing serious things. You really understood some of the dynamics of those individual clients and also some of the back and forth of how we confront implicit bias in the courtroom and try to bring, um, you know, confront that so that people can make informed decisions without biases. So in many ways, he just really brought the public defender wing of the civil rights movement into the national conversation. It sounded like just by the media articles once it was announced that you had been appointed by the mayor uh, that many in the public defender's office were relieved and, uh, and, uh, and of course, activists within the community. Uh, I, if it were me, I think that um, I, I would, like you said, those are really big shoes to fill in it, and I would have to be honest and say I can't fill those shoes and I can't be, you know, Jeff Adachi. I can't be... Um, yeah, the, 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 the person that you'd been championing for, you know, in the last years or so, you're pro you're probably going to, you're, you're Mano, and at the same time, right. Had worked with Jeff for a really long time. Mm -hmm. I guess what's the, the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway from working with Jeff that will continue with your work and, and then you kind of like where your thoughts are and. Um, a Mano spin, if there is one. I think the the biggest thing I would take away from Jeff, or one, continue to strive for individual excellence for each each and every client. You know, if a result happens, it should only happen after the attorney and our staff has done everything possible to fight for uh, to fight for that client. So it's an individual excellence. Also, uh, criminal legal system reform. Like we want to work on the individual, but also work with individuals, but also think about the system as a whole and where can we make interventions to make the system more equitable. And thirdly, uh, really connecting with community. I mean, Jeff is someone like so many people had a cell phone number. They'd be like, oh, yeah, Jeff, Jeff. And, they, you know, people just knew, knew Jeff, and he was really engaged with communities across the city. Just to have a public defender's office be a vital part of the culture of different communities in the city and actively engage with communities. Those are... Uh, the things I take away. Um, another, and one of the things that I would say we can add to because of what Jeffrey Dodge did is he's promoted and developed and grown such an amazing staff that we have a lot of leaders within the office. I mean, Matt Gonzalez is an amazing um, thought partner for me. We also have strong felony unit managers, a misdemeanor uh, training directors, uh, juvenile, paralegals, and we have a lot of even, and within those units, we have a lot of individuals who bring a lot to the table. So I'm really looking forward to tapping into the strengths of all the different uh, people we have in, in our office and really adopting more areas where we can, we can grow uh, other leaders and develop a collective leadership model to take us to the next level. So it sounds like San Francisco's public defender has a very specific and very strongly felt 
mission. Do you differ from, say, some other large cities in uh, the amount of resources, better or worse than than others? How, I mean, how, when you talk about these other people, is that more or less or the same highly staffed? Do you think of uh, similar communities? I haven't done a uh, you know a specific analysis of yeah. other public defenders' office. We are uh, somewhat better resourced than other public defenders' office, and I, Jeff did the work of actually doing like bringing people to to evaluate the office to see are some of this work being done that is being done by attorneys can that be done by paralegals instead yeah. in, in which case we should have a paralegal staff we could always use more funding like everyone in our office is always feeling like you know i just you know if i could get one or two more cases off my or more five or six off of my plate could i represent these other clients better i mean it's it's a triage situation sure. so we could always use more funding but we have worked hard to try to get more funding in different areas to uh you know, further benefit our clients. And also we, we started a pretrial release unit in our office where we represent people as soon as they come in and put information in front of the judge. So hopefully at arraignment, they can make a decision to release, which then reduces the city costs in terms of having to build a new jail or not having to build a new jail in this case. I want I mean, I kind of went back and forth with asking this question, but I mean, I guess I will, because I've, I'm very curious about it. And that is a, the, the relationship with, police association i mean i know that um it's in there in the news and it was the case that that jeff had you know a contentious relationship as such in certain um in certain cases or specific cases and kind of what your thoughts are like if you feel a little bit of 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 nervousness or or it's it's business as usual and it'll continue in that way and you know, it's like a whole new different playing field now. I think they're hoping for they're they're from what I've read, it seems as if um they're hoping that there there is a different feel or a different relationship to be established. Well, I I'm actually meeting with uh Chief Scott tomorrow, so I'm looking forward to that conversation because I think if you have well meaning uh, police officers that's 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 really important. Uh, at the same time, we need attorneys in court who are willing to really attack and cross-examine vigorously anyone who's on the stand. I mean, that's the we have an adversarial system, and if there's an adversarial system, the theory behind it is that through direct examination of our witnesses and cross-examination of police officers, we'll have you know neutral finders of fact, the judges or, or juries in certain cases, and they'll make that decision. So we need. Officer, we need attorneys and, and staff that's willing to not back down from police officers. And also we need the information appropriate, you know, 1421 just passed. And there's information about police officers that we need in order to appropriately cross-examine them. And that's something that, you know, there are some mechanisms, but those need to be more open. When our clients are on the stand or we have witnesses that we're calling any prior convictions and, or things of that nature or, or quote-unquote bad conduct they can be cross-examined about we should have the same with police officers obviously so literally as we're sitting here today uh mayor london breed is at another commonwealth club program uh elsewhere in downtown she's moderating a program with uh valerie jarrett former obama uh, aide so you know it's this adversarial session the chief of police is appointed you're appointed you know you have the the board of supervisors and the, and the mayor who kind of have to be responsible to both. What's your role if you 
do see that relationship with the police department or or maybe you see the city tilting one way or the other. You get to go in and, and, and have you and talk to the mayor about this. Uh, what would the reception be like? Because, you know, they're, they're, of course, playing to the constituencies all across the city. Some of them might be, you know, we need more police. Some might be, oh, you know, this is, this is balanced against the accused. So how, how do you, do you, I guess, maybe even uh, ever negotiate through the mayor's office? Or is it, you know, if, if you've got an issue, you bring it directly to the chief of police. Well, I've only been here for a couple of weeks, so a lot okay. of these relationships are forming. I'm first sure. have to meet with my entire staff, and then we've had to make I had to fill my own position in the office uh, as the director of felony manager. So, first, the thing I'm looking forward to doing is meeting with all with all the players. But for me, both as an attorney, a line deputy, and then a manager, my focus has always been let's be client centered. My focus is always on our clients, and I think if I'm true to that, to both trying to do whatever we can from our clients and trying to manage. And as a felony manager, I really try to empower attorneys and paralegals and investigators to really do their job as well as possible. And I'm true to that. And I'm being honest about that. Then, you know, I'll talk to whoever I need to about that, whether it's the mayor, supervisors, chief of police, whoever it is. And because I think one beautiful thing about being a public defender is like, I'm not, it's our clients and, and their families. And that's who I'm representing. So as long as I bring that, you know, earnestly and honestly mm-hmm. to the table, you know, I'm happy to talk with anyone. I feel like you have such a huge job, uh, a huge job to, to protect the the public, the communities, I mean, and, and the most vulnerable and marginalized. I mean, at the end of the day, you're defending folks who can't afford an attorney. There's been a lot of talk about reform and reform in general, right? Bail reform, um, criminal justice reform and even activists such as Kim Kardashian are joining in on the conversation. And so, you know, to so much of you, you're, you're in the courtrooms defending your clients. And then outside of the courtroom, you're an activist for these really, really, really big issues that we face the entire system. I mean, to, to reform it, to change it. I mean, I, I, how possible, what do we need to do? Uh, are we at, you know, a moment in, in our history, in our politics, that it, it's possible to really change it all? I think there is an increasing understanding of the need for change. Um, Brian Stevenson has, you know, is someone who's worked on uh, getting people off of death row when they were improperly uh, convicted. And we've seen and there's been a spotlight on that, particularly in death penalty situations, uh, where it's later been unearthed what evidence was not brought forward or what evidence was suppressed or what evidence the defense was not provided by the prosecution. And we have attention in that area, but we don't have, haven't had nearly the same amount of attention on what happens prior to conviction or why people are pleading to things that they shouldn't be pleading to. And I think that's the next level that we have to start bringing attention to. I mean, every public defender, including myself, has had a situation, and I'll just tell you one uh, story back from my Contra Costa days, where I had a client who was walking in the woods, this is in Richmond, California, and he had, because he was walking in the woods, he picked up a branch and was just walking with it. He sees his younger cousin on a scooter, but his younger cousin is 13 years old, and he says to him, what are you doing? You should be, you should be at school. And the kid says to my client, um, you can't tell me what to do. You're not my dad. And my client, you know, jokingly with the branch, 
you know, pulls it back and, and he says, well, if I was your dad, I'd hit you with this, but regardless, get to school. Unfortunately, on the backswing, he ended up scratching mm. his younger cousin on the cheek. He ran home crying. My client went home to see how he was. They charged that teenager, 19-year-old boy, with assault with a deadly weapon, which is a strike in California. Then his younger brother at the door, who was the younger brother of the person who had the scratch, said that my client said something threatening to him. He said, don't tell your mom and claim that my client threatened the seven-year-old in some way. That's called uh, criminal threat. That's two strikes. So this young 19-year-old in Richmond is facing two strikes for something that, frankly, in another part of the county may not have been charged at all. Someone may have just asked the parents what's going on here and not charged at all, or at most it would have been charged as a misdemeanor. Because of the charge... You know, bail said it at some level. We go through, we manage to get one of the charges uh, thrown out, fortunately, at preliminary hearing because the young seven-year-old said, I wasn't afraid of him. And that's one of the elements of a criminal threat. There has to be the fear. So that was gone. But then we were ready to go to trial. And I was really encouraging this client to, we should go to trial. It was an accident. We need to go. But he said, you know what? I have to get home now. I just have to, and they offered him a felony, dismissing the strike in this case, but a felony still. And he took that deal. And I still remember my conversation with him to that day. And really, like, I really wish we had gone to trial in that case. Now, we really work on empowering attorneys to have those trust-building conversations. And I'm glad I at least got the strikes dismissed. But nonetheless, this is not a young man who should have a felony on his record for an accidental scratch mm-hmm. on a cheek when he's really trying to be a responsible older cousin and get his younger cousin to school, you know. And but these and these stories are not uncommon. These stories happen every day in our courtroom. So I think it's time that we start presenting those stories, having people do that. Um, we've started a program called Court Watch. Our public defenders for racial justice and our racial justice committee, where we encourage people to come into courtrooms to see what's actually going on day in and day out in courtrooms, to see people coming out with orange, to see how people are referred to in court, to see you know someone you know making a bail motion to see what happens there to watch court because there's so much that can be learned. I mean, a criminal court in the United States in many ways is a microcosm for so many issues in society, but not enough people, except if you're an insider, know what's going on. So we're trying to encourage people to come to court. And we have one of our managers in the office has done a commendable job. He'll bring in um, college students and high school students from the Bay area and even from the central Valley to come and watch court. So I think the more, um, we can shed light on the truth, the more we'll be able to reform uh, our criminal legal system. One of the things you've talked about, and I think this is related uh, as being a priority of yours, is overcharging. Um, a gang charge might be added to something that is maybe a connection to someone worse, but then that all the illusions of that other gang member get kind of lurted onto you know, someone else who hadn't done something. Talk a bit about that and... and uh, exactly how you go about dealing with it. Overcharging in general? Yeah, yeah. sure. Well, over, you know, they'll go to gangs in particular. Uh, overcharging is a, is a nationwide problem. Uh, I just heard uh, Professor Bazelon on the radio on Fresh Air talking about this the other day, and she's written a book on this topic. It is not uncommon for enhancements, multiple charges, different ways of describing the same charged to be in court and bail is actually linked to the charges and the bail gets really enhanced and and 
our clients can't bail out. And then you're in these positions where someone might charge, like the story I just said, two or three strikes, and then say, hey, we'll drop the strikes, but if you plead to this felony, that's a very common scenario. Or you'll have a situation where you have perhaps a prosecutor arguing against saying this person's a public safety, they shouldn't be released, and then nine days later or ten days later when it's time for the preliminary hearing, they say, well, he can be released now as long as he or she pleads to a felony. So all of a sudden this concern went out the door when it's, when there was some pressure and time for a hearing. So this is a very common phenomenon, both the what's known in, in courthouses, the credit for time served offer. You can go home today if you plead guilty, even though we said before you were a danger to society and shouldn't be released or you weren't going to come back. Um, and then also just the, the amount of time that people are looking at. It's um, sometimes you'll be in a situation where someone's offered two or three years and the attorneys and they're saying, no, you, you, you're not guilty of this case. And the client's saying, I'm not guilty. And so the attorney's encouraging them to go. But when you look at how much time this case carries, it might carry 10 years or 20 years. And it's also not uncommon for a prosecutor to say, you can resolve this today for one or two years or, or even be released today. But then after trial, say, my, your client was convicted. Now I'm off. Now I'm telling the judge to sentence you to 12 years, 20 years, scenarios like that. So, um, it's one thing to tell a client who might be looking at county jail time and probation, or maybe a short prison sentence to go to trial. It's another thing when you have a scenario where they're looking at life in prison. I had a case where it's it's a client who got into an altercation with an off-duty officer, and he was very clear to me from the beginning that it was self-defense, but they charged him with attempted murder, and the off-duty officer ended up with one uh, stab wound on his side after my client was thrown to the ground and being beat up. Um, And this is a a little knife that my client had for protection. No record, had never used it before, and he also works, he worked in a grocery store and was often using the knife to to, uh, cut open boxes. And I told him, listen, you're charged with attempted murder. I'm trying to get the, if I think you should go to trial because you're not guilty. It's clear from your character and it's clear from what happened and, and I think from the witnesses. But if you're looking at attempted murder, you'll go down. You may never be released. Mm. So if I can't get the attempted murder charge gone, I'm going to advise you to take the best deal that I can get for you. Fortunately, we were able to, through motion work and cross-examination at, at one of the hearings, get the case down to where the maximum was eight years, still a substantial chunk of time. But at that point, he had the courage to go forward and say, you know, let's go to trial. Let's not accept a deal because at least now I'm not looking at life in prison. Fortunately, the trial went our way and he was acquitted and the, the jury was able to see the truth of that he was acting in self-defense, but that wouldn't have happened uh, in the way the, the case was initially charged. Um, and as far as gang cases, these are cases where our clients um, especially in San Francisco, they're oftentimes uh, part, you know, if you grow up in certain neighborhoods, you have friends, you have family, and in a city like we have it with some of the stratification and segregation, your whole community might be in this neighborhood. So you're going to know people who have gotten caught up with the law in some way or another. It might be your uncle, your cousin, your friend, your neighbor, and you're intimately connected with all these folks. That doesn't mean that if person A did something, you you signed off on that. And what happens in those cases, you have all these materials coming forward against your client, and it's really a way of adding on and, and in some ways an attempt to scare the jury into saying, listen, you're part of 
you're part of this bigger uh, group that the prosecutor is saying negative things about, and therefore uh, I may not look at the actual facts in this case enough and just convict you based on association. Mm -hmm. And I think in that scenario, that's where it's really important what I'll – when I was trained director and his felony manager, what I would advise people to do is the first thing you should do is go into your client's home or your grandmother's home and sit in there and talk to your clients, talk to the family members, talk to your client's mem- grandmother, look at pictures, get a feel for who that person is. And then you find all these beautiful things about, I mean, all of my clients who've been accused of uh, being gang members, I think, I just think the world of it. The amount of, that they've been able to accomplish under extremely difficult circumstances, uh, is really commendable. And I've seen a lot of my clients going out of their way and really being godparents to other kids, encouraging other young people, you know, trying to navigate through, uh, through very difficult circumstances to achieve their dreams. But nevertheless, they may have, you know, different challenges than other people have. And I think the most important thing for us to do is to really get to know our clients really well, bring community members forward to counteract the narrative being prided by uh, gang task force or the prosecution so that we can bring more truth into the courtroom and have the jury eva- evaluate the case, the facts of the case, and our client based on who they really are. So that's one thing I've re- been really pushing for. It's, Go ahead. It's now time, actually, for our audience to ask Manoa a question. And uh, we have a roving mic. John's going to pass it around. So just speak into the mic. It is being recorded oh, for the uh- program. If you have a question for Manel. Right here in the front. I have a couple questions. Firstly, is a gang involvement necessarily bad? That's a good question. And, and it, again, it depends on how you define gang. There's a lot of people who rely on their friends, their neighbors, their extended family to for support and to get through their life. Now, Someone in gang task force or the prosecutor's office may choose to label that a gang, but a lot of our clients think of this as their family. And the reality is if someone has gone, you know, been convicted of something, let's say it's gone possession or and come back to the community, what's important for that young person? I mean, Mario Witch, for example, he went to prison and came back. And when he came back, he actually really needed the support of his community. And I have a young client who was previously accused of being a gang member. We you know, he wasn't. We beat the gang charges. We beat the strikes he was charged with. And he's actually a well-established union painter. And he's someone who really should have been with Mario Woods and helped him when he came back because he had some mental health issues. And the community should have been with him. But because he was labeled a gang member and they were part of an injunction, he wasn't allowed to really interact with Mario Woods. And Mario Woods needed his community around him to really hold him when he was released from custody. And sometimes... I agree that, you know, just because someone labels someone a gang member, this is someone you grew up with. If this is someone who's part of your extended family, whether or not they may have been convicted of a crime before, that connection with them is often a very healthy connection. The next question relates to sanctuary cities. Have you been involved with people who have um, immigrants who had committed crimes, that type of situation where where they committed a crime and they're protected by the sanctuary law, and there's been trouble. Yes, well, we have a we have very strong immigration unit uh, in our office, and in part that was started after the crackdown on immigrants with the new administration. But there's really no correlation between immigration status and criminality, and that's been shown time and time again. So the two are sort of separate questions. If someone 
uh, commits a crime, then there will, there's a process go, that will be initiated by the police and the prosecutor's office to prosecute that person for that crime. That's a separate question than immigration status, and the, those studies are, are out there. Another question? Yes, sir. Hello. Thank Hello. you. Uh, my name is Peter Kaysen, and uh, I just want to ask a question about relations between your office and the DA's office. Mm-hmm. And although I know in the courtroom, by definition, you're in an adversarial relationship with criminal justice reform on the table, and at least two of the DA candidates for your election are very interested in criminal justice reform. Are there areas outside the courtroom that you feel the two offices can cooperate with each other in, in trying to further reforms? Yeah, I really hope that there are. We have an outgoing district attorney, George Gascon, but one of the things I'm really hoping is that we can collaborate together and, for starters, expand young adult court. I mean, there's increasing understanding that the brain is not fully developed until the age of 24, 25 years old, and yet we're treating young people, transitional age youth, 19, 20, 20 young adults, as if their their brain is fully developed. So can we, I would love to collaborate with them and come up with a situation where we could expand young adult courts. So if a young person is in a situation where they're accused of committing a crime, rather than settling that person with an additional felony conviction, which is going to make it even more difficult for that person to live a law abiding life, can we give that person the job training, the educational skills the rehabilitation, perhaps if it's uh, drug or alcohol rehabilitation, so that they can move in a positive direction. I, I would like to see a situation where both us and the district attorney's office, in the interest of individual and community development and public safety, uh, expand young adult court. Um, hi. Um, hi. On that kind of that same area, um, I want to talk about juvenile cases and um, your policy. I, I understand that San Francisco is thinking about doing away with juvenile hall. And um, in my opinion, that's a very good thing. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, I, I imagine how you feel about this. I expect that's probably something you're very interested in. But what would you do then if and when juvenile hall goes away uh, in place of that, which is in theory what juvenile hall is supposed to do, which is to rehabilitate, which they don't, but that's a separate issue, um, to actually kind of bring forth that kind of process for you know youth who are involved in the criminal justice system, um, how you would deal with that. Mostly just what what would take its place is really what I'm interested in. Well, we have a well-established uh, juvenile office headed by Patty Lee, and I've been focused, my main practice on uh, in San Francisco has been on felonies and adults, people who are at least considered adults in the system. So, and Pat, But we are at the table with experts in the field and Patty Lee in terms of we, there's going to be a fair amount of money if this happens to create other facilities so that we can engage young people in rehabilitative efforts if that's appropriate and if there has to be, you know, some sort of secure facility, other places where, you know, people can be kept for some period of time until, until that happens. But I mean, I myself represented someone who was charged in adult court with a very serious crime. And, you know, the district attorney's office thought at that time that this person, I mean, they didn't give him any offer. It was, uh, they were essentially offering him a life sentence. We did the trial, the client was found not guilty and released and he's doing very well now. 
in as in construction so a lot of times you know there's this perception that someone has to be um incarcerated and that's when you get to understand that person better that's just not the case but we do have people who will we have an ex- experts in that field uh in our juvenile office and they will be working on solutions to make sure that there was something to take the place of juvenile hall i have a question about um bail reform it was a big issue, of course, and supposedly back by October it will end in the state. Am I correct? Or is, uh, is there a challenge to it that might delay that? Yeah. I mean, the, the uh, what's really important is that we – I mean, cash bail is not a fair system because if the idea is this person is a flight risk and a danger to society, then the mere fact that they paid some money doesn't change that fact. And that, But that's the situation that we have now. Mm-hmm. So the more we can move in the direction of the presumption of release, the better. Because the more often we don't have that presumption of release, time and time again, that custodial status is going to generate pleas. And it generates pleas that, you know, ignore the presumption of innocence, ignore the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And we end up in situations where, you know, that custodial status determines everything. So... I just think the more we can move in that direction, the better. Ideally speaking, you know, all cases, we, we, we wouldn't have plea bargaining. We would have cases all going to trial so we could, so that the community can come forward and determine whether or not this individual, whether or not the proof is there and whether after looking at the presumption of innocence and the facts. But when we have uh, bail keeping people in custody when they haven't been convicted of anything, then it leads to distorted outcomes that aren't fair. As well as hardships on their family. And hardships on their family. And even things like investigating a case, like if, you know, the reality is our clients know the community, know the dynamics. And a lot of times our clients should be our lead investigators on their own cases. But when you're in jail, you can't be that lead investigator in the way you want to because you're, you're incarcerated. And it makes our jobs so much more difficult. It makes our ability to bring truth into the courtroom much more challenging. Anyone else have a question? Another one up here. Yeah, how often does the uh, defendant admit to committing the crime and there's no issue? Well, when you say, again, committing the crime. You have a defendant and there's an issue with a crime and the person just comes out and says, I did it. What percentage of the cases that that come to you, or it doesn't even come to you, right? Right. It's it's a – it's – a surprising number of times where the charges actually are not true or there's overcharging and everything they've charged is not true. For example, just to take one example, we've, uh, in just in 2018, we've documented at least 10 times where the district attorney charged, uh, premeditated attempted murder. And in 10 of those cases, after preliminary hearing, that wasn't there anymore because it was determined there was not pre- Attempted murder it was not premeditation; it was an assault. So it was an overcharge, and it may have been a self-defense scenario. So, when we say "did it," it's so much more complicated than you know w- what was done and what were the dynamics there. And that's the that's the reason you need a vigorous defense counsel to flush out what exactly did happen. Um, and having said that, if the defense attorney, after evaluation of the case, thinks that the best resolution in that case 
is some sort of guilty plea, then the next, then the more important step is, okay, for what? What should happen? This person is willing to plead guilty. Should should that person have some drug rehabilitation program? Should they have behavioral health court? Should they have mental health treatment? Like, what's the best way to have that person re-enter into society as a fully formed, functional person, you know? So. One here and then in back. Sorry. I don't want to dominate these. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. Um, you were just talking about bail reform, and in theory, if bail reform actually does come through at some point, um, and actually you're not presumed to be guilty at the point mm-hmm. of uh, entering a plea, uh, and people do actually get out of custody at that point, and and will actually go to trial more often, mm-hmm. um, how do you staff that? In your office, I mean, where where you're going to need more lawyers. I mean, ultimately, what would be the plan, the long term plan on how you're going to actually carry that out, which is what should actually happen, but you can't do it without the men and women actually in the courtrooms ready to try all those cases. So, what's your thought about that? Well, we'll be needing more staff. I agree with that. But if we need more staff to actually try to uh, create just outcomes, then that's what has to happen. Of course, if clients are out of custody, there may be more clients who are willing to, you know, wait a little bit so that attorneys can devote their time to other clients as opposed to being in custody and feeling that pressure to go fast and get out. So that may be one uh, change in the system. But uh, the reality is, you know, if trials can also happen more efficiently in some ways, and if we can have more time and we were able to do things since our clients are out of custody. We may be able to contact witnesses and get things done more quickly. Then it may actually go the other way. But we may be able to move more quickly in certain circumstances because our client can now assist us in their own representation. So those are also that's also a possibility. And maybe get and, that's true. Also. Hi. Um, so my question I wanted to mention when you brought up Mario Woods that the night Mario Woods was shot and killed, I was at the police commission because Jeff Adachi was there. Um, to testify against um, the police officers being able to view the video um, body cam footage before writing their reports. So he was very, you know, proactive, as you know, on, on all kinds of issues. And one of the last issues I know he brought up was um, what's going on in the jails and, and with the guards and, and the inmates and stuff. And how do you see moving forward? Because um, you are, of course, your own person. But um, in terms of policy and stuff and those kinds of um, actions, um, how do you see moving forward in the um, public defender's office? I think it's important that we look at these systems holistically. I mean, the police arrest our clients, then they're charged by the prosecutor's office, and then they're uh, cared for in the, should be cared for, the sheriff's department in the sh- under the custody of the sheriff, and we should be able to get to trial our clients should be able to get to trial or to the ultimate resolution in their case in a safe manner. So if that isn't happening, that's a huge problem. So we need more transparency, more more accountability. Um, but I think it's really important that we look at that holistically. Like if there's a crime that is going to be that has been committed against one of our clients by a sheriff's deputy, then the district attorney should be taking a look at that in the same way they look at our clients who are not sheriff deputies, if they think that crime consistent with their own policy, they should be charging that person if a crime was committed. Um, but until people are willing to look at each other and look at, until we're able to look at systems holistically, I don't think we're going to have the necessary reform that we need, but we need to keep on pushing for that increased transparency and accountability. 
Hey, Mano. Hey, man. So, Matt Gonzalez. Uh, I wanted to ask you, I thought it might be interesting if, uh, if you said something about how technology is changing the practice of law, and I'm thinking a little bit of uh, body-worn camera in particular. Right. Well, I think with uh, body-worn camera, I mean, especially after Michael Brown and the number of police shootings, it became more and more apparent that, you know, when we have video that, you know, what, what a police officer says isn't always borne out by the video. And I think now with this increasing body-worn camera, we're seeing that uh, more and more. And I think it's really important on us as defense attorneys. There are a lot of times before where we'd say, listen, the police officer said that. Um, the jury's going to believe that. Therefore, client, you should take this deal. But now that we have this body-worn camera, you know, we do, uh, and we've now developed increasingly technology to get it into our office and to have it viewed effectively, you know, we can do a lot more in terms of effectively cross-examining uh, police officers. And Jeff Adachi was really uh, a trendsetter in that sense, and he's trying to get us to bring more technology into the courtroom. We now have these electronic trial boards so we can show visuals and show some footage to jurors in a way that makes it makes the reality on the streets much more understandable to people. So any moves that we can make to bring technology uh, into the courtroom so that we can, again, uh, pr- paint a fuller picture of any any events that happen, the better. Well, I think that uh, we're right on time, and we're almost done with our program. I just really have one last question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're not defending the public, when you're not, you know, uh, in the office and managing folks and then stepping into this role, um, this big role <laughs> that you will be stepping into, what do you like to do? <laughs> well, th- this is a big role. I have a um, I have a wonderful family, both in my immediate family and extended family. My son is an avid uh, soccer player, so I like to be a soccer dad, and uh, I love to you know read with him. And my wife is actually an amazing um, leadership development uh, one of the leaders in the field of leadership development and facilitation. So. A lot of my ideas, I'm bouncing off of her, and I have a wonderful uh, group of uh, friends also. And I do try to get my exercise in whenever I can, too. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. It sounds okay. like 5 10% of the right. day. Exactly. Uh, I, I wanted to ask, you mentioned uh, programs to bring people in to watch courts. And, and I was thinking, as you were saying that, most of us probably think we know how courts happen because we watched Please proceed. Yeah, well, Mm -hmm. the the reality, the reality in quotes. But I was even thinking of more just the scripted dramas of, you know, courtroom intrigue. Do you ever watch any of them? Do you have any favorites or do you avoid them like the plague? You know, it's not something that I really um, do want to spend that much time on, in part because of, uh, you know, I'm I'm in it so much on the day to day. However, I think 12 Angry Men is like must is uh, is a must must watch. I think To Kill a Mockingbird is something that people should really watch. And the show The Practice, which is not there anymore, there was some really strong defense attorney in that show. I remember Eugene used to always have this particular way that he'd deliver one line from his table, then he'd get up and button his jacket. And just the ability to communicate effectively in a short amount of time is something we should always, as uh, public defenders, be working on. So thank you. I did enjoy that show. 
Mano, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and understanding the work, and uh, congratulations on being appointed by the mayor. It sounds like for the November 5th election, you'll run uncontested, so you continue on the position. I think San Francisco is extremely lucky to have such incredible leaders like yourself and Matt Gonzalez, who's here, and the rest of the team in the Public Defender's Office. Thanks for joining us here at the Michelle Miao Show. Let's give a round of applause for Mano. Thank you very much, Michelle and John. I really appreciate both of you.